Morning, sleepy. Guess you want McDonald's for breakfast? Uh, how'd you know? You were sleep humming the McDonald's jingle. I don't know what you're talking about. You just did it. No, I didn't. So, McDonald's? I could use a cafe latte. There's a McDonald's for every morning. Start your morning at McDonald's with a delicious sausage biscuit and savory hash browns for only $1.50. At participating McDonald's for a limited time cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. How do you not hear that? Blog Talk Radio. Our next guest, Rick Ulfick, is founder and board chairman of We the World. Its mission is to maximize social change globally working to awaken a spirit of caring and involvement in the public so that millions of people begin to see themselves as part of one global interdependent community and actively take part in creating a world that works for all. Rick is also co-chair of the Foundation for Ethics and Meaning and was a principal, is a principal organizer of 11 Days of Global Unity which is observed September 11th to the 21st, an annual convergence of more than 200 events in over 60 countries around the world as part of a strategy for building mass public awareness and involvement in the work of peace and sustainability, and I'm sure he'll tell us more about that today. He's also an accomplished composer and musician and a former teacher of music and mathematics in the New York City school system. His background in social change organizing is so extensive, it's far too much for me to try to relay, going back to the early 1990s. And he will be speaking on igniting the individual will to address the urgency of the environmental crisis. Please welcome Rick Olfick. Thank you so much. In particular, I, I want to thank you for allowing me to, to go beyond the norm or what is the norm for me about talking strategy and tactics for organizing so that we can get to a, like a deeper level of what's underlying what motivates me and what I think motivates many of us to seek a world that works for all. It, I, I appreciate that opportunity to go a little bit deeper into these things. So change is upon us. As you mentioned before when you, you were talking, we've seen all of the uh, incredible events over the last few years, uh, the Obama campaign, the economic crisis that's going on, creating quite a bit of change. The uh, Middle East conflicts are escalating. There are all kinds of other things that are part of change as well. The technology with Facebook and the social interactive so social media is all creating quite a bit of change. This is also change on the terms of climate, climate change. Uh, some of the indicators that scientists were looking to have been accelerating, like the, the rate at which the polar ice caps are melting and other kinds of indi indicators are changed. So, so some people really think that we are moving towards a new era. Some, some people call it the age of Aquarius. There's someone named Paul Ray who's an advisory board member of We the World. And he, he's a social researcher and he says that we're not only witnessing a change of eras, we, we are entering an era of change. And there are so many aspects of that that we're aware of and, and things that are coming up. The global demand for water is going to double within 20 years. And what kinds of changes is that going to mean for everyone on the planet? So the question is, how can we harness the possibilities for great change, Aikido style, and shift them towards sustainability and peace and transformation as opposed to towards eco-collapse, which is a very real possibility. So before I go any further, I want to take a, like a little bit of a survey and just see, I'm always kind of curious, you know, where people are at in, in terms of their conception of the planet and the crisis that we fa face and that kind of thing. 
So given the array of all the, the issues that, that we are aware of, you know, climate change, poverty, militarism, violence, oil depletion, economic meltdown that's going on, uh, regional conflicts, nuclear weapons, all of that, how many people think that if we don't take emergency measures now and really change what we're doing over the next few years, like over the next five years, that we will be looking at a, a real kind of even collapse or a catastrophe that, that could even affect the United States and Western countries. How many people actually feel that? Okay. Well, it looks like uh, maybe a little more than half, uh, maybe five-eighths or something like that. Okay, so how many people actually feel that the the level of urgency that's happening right now, never mind in the future, is is great enough that we need to make a, an extraordinary change in direction, just given the way uh, things are right now. Okay, it looks like everybody's agreeing with that. Third question is, how many people think that our political leaders, our media leaders, our those in power with economic power, corporate CEOs and that kind of thing, will be the ones that lead the way towards the kind of uh, peace and sustainability that we're uh, looking for. Nobody's raising their hand at all. <laughs> okay, so last question. How many people here are willing to stand up and, and join the growing global m movement for peace, sustainability and transformation and put yourself on the line to, to make a difference uh, so that we can actually get off the path of catastrophe and, and onto the, the path of sustainability. Stand up. I want you to stand up for this. Okay, give yourselves a, a round of applause. Thank you. Okay, so now let's get to work. So as I see it, the big picture is that uh, the sci scientists have told us that we do need to make these extraordinary changes very soon. Otherwise, there are two major issues that I'm aware of that could become irreversible, climate change and the mass extinction of species. And not that many people are talking about the extinction of species crisis, but it's, it's, one, it's the one that really ignited my will to good in the uh, late 1990s. I heard a, a talk by someone named Richard Leakey, who was the son of Louis Leakey, who with Lucy discovered uh, uh, the fossil. And Richard Leakey wrote a book called The Sixth Great Extinction. And he, he pointed out that there have been five mass extinctions of life on the planet in the past, the last one being the dinosaurs and 65 million years ago which scientists feel may have happened as a result of a, a, a meteor hitting the earth and sending up dust. But this one, the, the sixth, he, he said in 1997 that we are on the edge of one of these happening right now, but it's human caused. And his, what he said is that if we don't act very soon over the next decade or so, that it will become irrever irreversible with tremendous disruption to the food chain and, and we need to act. And that it's kind of related to climate change because a lot of extinction of species is happening as a result of climate change, but there are many other factors, pollution and all of that. So the problem as I see it is that these tremendous measures that need to be happening are not happening very uh, for one one important reason, which is the the rise of militarism and and uh, it's draining resources and the human spirit that's really that we really need to uh, bring people together in order to tackle these these issues. And there's what I call a, a global disconnect going on. Every minute, fifteen children die around the the world of hunger and preventable disease. And during that same minute, $2 million is spent by people in total around the world on weapons and war and militarism. So for me, it's like a, a, a global disconnect. And I don't know if you can see this, but it's, uh, the it says here what the world wants. 
and it is a, a diagram uh, in one corner here shows the things that are of concern to people like ending uh, hunger on the planet and, and there are dollar amounts of what it would cost to do that like 19 billion dollars a year for 10 years provide shelter for everyone on the planet 21 billion dollars a year for for 10 years uh, soil erosion provide clean water uh, renewable energy sources and stabilize the population on and on there so all of these occupy this part of the diagram here and the rest of the sheet shows what is actually being spent on weapons and, and militarism. So it's like three times as much is being spent on that as compared to these things, which is what the world wants and what people are fighting about, actually. So there's a, like a, a global disconnect going on. Another thing that I noticed is that even if we were to somehow overcome the tremendous obstacles that you can see happening with the the Copenhagen uh, talks, the Kyoto Accord, the Millennium Development Goals. There are tremendous obstacles in, in, in these things becoming realized, you know, to uh, create a better world. But even if we were to somehow get the funding to, to do that, to end poverty and begin to uh, stop climate change or slow it down, the underlying issues that got us to this this edge of global collapse will still be there. So even if somehow we, we did succeed in getting the funding to do the emergency measures, there are these underlying things. What I believe is, and I'd like to also hear what you think of this as well. What I believe is that what we need is a cultural shift, a shift that brings us away from what our advisory board member, Rian Eisler, calls dominator culture or domination culture uh, towards something called partnership culture. Rian Eisler wrote a book called The Chalice and the Blade. She became fairly well known for that. And so these are the uh, these two paradigms are kind of moving and are part of our culture. And they haven't really been talked about that directly. You know, people don't really understand when somebody says, oh, we need more prisons or we need to uh, defend our, ourselves or somebody comes from a, a different point of view and would like to relax the, uh, the drug laws, for example, in New York State, the Rockefeller drug laws. These, these are representing two different kinds of directions that people have in, in terms of our culture. Rianne sent me a, a quote recently, and uh, I just want to read it. She says, We so urgently need people to change the conversation, to address underlying issues, to show that the real struggle here is between domination and partnership systems, and that this is basic to the kind of world our children will inherit. I also want to say that I'm, I'm, in my own life, I'm working to get away from having an attitude of judging things, you know, like that they're right or wrong. So I don't want to say that the domination culture is wrong and the partnership culture is right. It's more like the results of one are ones that don't work for me and the results of the other do. So, and just to define these two par paradigms a bit, I just want to go through some of the characteristics of them. So with dominator culture, it's characterized by winners and losers, basically. And there's tremendous social and economic inequality, corporate globalization, massive damage to our ecosystems and the other commons, exploitation and commodification of all forms of life, the environment, and many other aspects of society, patriarchy, extreme fundamentalist religious groups, norms in media, culture, and communication that emphasize power over instead of power with, suppression of many people's meaning needs, excessive consumerism, looking out for number one no matter what the consequences to others are, and let's see, extensive prison, military, and weapons proliferation, and the destruction of indigenous people's culture and lands. And one word about the indigenous peoples, you know, they are being squeezed and pushed to their own edge of extinction, and they may actually have the wisdom that we can use to to make this uh, shift towards um, sustainability and peace and and transformation, because they've been living in harmony with the earth 
for millennia and and they're being marginalized uh, in many parts of the world. So before I get into partnership culture, I just want to kind of open it up a little bit and just see, just kind of go around the room and, you know, just say what was the single issue or concern that most affected you and got you to the point where you are very caring and concerned about what's happening with the planet. So just if you can just say like a single word or phrase for what it is that that made a difference for you that that kind of changed your life. So it doesn't have to be everyone, but if you want to raise your hand, I'll... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah, that's great. Thank you. You're welcome. I was at the University of Illinois back in 1970. Yeah. And at that time, um, Gillard Nelson was the senator from Wisconsin. Yeah. And we had a lot of buttons, a lot of things at that time. But we had a, a little button that said, um, save, basically save the earth. You know, the first Earth Day we had was in 1970. All right. And I don't know how it was in most of the campuses, but in the Midwest and especially in that area, it was big at that time. Farm Aid came out in Champaign-Urbana. Okay. And a lot of these other offshoots came out from situations like that. That's so um, it's one Thank of the things you. where you begin to take your plastics to the garbage, not to the garbage dump, but to the recycling bin. So Very good. Most things that began with, I'd yeah. say, Earth Day. So, that, so Earth Day, that's fabulous. Anybody else? Four things, um, 1967 to 68, um, the assassination of Dr. King, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, um, our family's quest to end the Vietnam War, and my dad worked in, working for the U.N., and then living in Detroit and working right there to practice race relations and moving into Detroit with that commitment, and it just changed my life. Wow, thank you. Who else? What was the first issue that, that you became concerned about? Sitting at the kitchen table with my mother. Yeah. That's my upbringing. And, and so what, what, what was it about that? Um, because my upbringing is such that um, my family they don't they don't know any separation from nature or from the earth, uh. and so it's, it's generational. So um, when you become an age where you sit at the kitchen table with your mama, she tells you about how she was brought up, and the different um, beings and the different uh, aspects of the earth that was a part of her daily life and a part of just being here on this planet. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I'm a native New Yorker, and I grew up in Manhattan. I went to high school in Manhattan, and uh, my high school was located in a very ritzy part of town. And I noticed very quickly that some people had so much, and so many people had so little. It struck me as quite unfair. Um, as I grew, that developed into a desire to to protect and defend innocence, children, animals, the earth, the, that which is voiceless, and that for which I could have a voice and, and maybe take some actions to, to protect. That's great. I was brought up in a, an atmosphere that was quite against this kind of thing, and it was quite a battle, but I seemed to somehow still feel that I wanted to be aware of the world. And when I joined Lucy's Trust, there was so much emphasis on service and being aware of what was going on in the world and how we all needed to help in that direction that I was able finally to relate to what I could be doing. I would say it was the Vietnam War when I was 11. I was sitting with my brother when he opened his draft notice. Wow. And I watched his face turn several shades that weren't human. And then wow. I watched my family mobilize and move him to Canada and set him up wow. and making many caravan trips up there and being so proud of my family as immigrants who were afraid to do many of those kinds of things really support him. Im immigrants from where? Tunisia, North Africa, but of Italian descent. <laughs> Interesting, huh? Right. I grew up in a very protected middle-class family, um, and it was not until I went off to college um, that I began, my eyes began to be opened up, and it was John F. Kennedy that really inspired me to want to become a social worker and give something to the country. Any other uh, 
epiphanies that happen in your lives that got you on the on the path of creating a better world? I don't know if this was an epiphany so much as it was a um, the notion of what seems um, obvious not being obvious. I think I was a sophomore in high school and I was preparing for uh, the debate season on energy and there was a piece of evidence that we discovered about somebody who invented uh, a way of putting a contraption on just about any vehicle that could instantly transform it into getting 75 miles per gallon. And I thought this should be on front page in the, in the upcoming weeks. I don't think it's ever been on the front page. And I thought that's a big disconnect. That's it. That's great. Okay, someone in the back. Studying the health sciences, anatomy, histology, and uh, physiology, and seeing the commonality of all humans. And now we discovered that all humans share 99.9% .9 have the same genes after gen the genome project came about. So that gave you kind of a global picture of our human family. That's great. Anyone else? Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if that was it, but I'm pretty sure uh, that started something. I remember being a young boy in Haiti and people walking around preaching about the end of the world. And it was supposed to be, I think if I remember well, I bought the somewhere April or, but it was pretty imminent the way they said it, but and it would happen you know, very closely. And even at that age, it didn't really make sense to me that you know the, what they were saying about the end of the world. And, and something in me since then, I think, wanted to know a kind of awakening, wanted to know more and um, about you know the world and think that there are certain things that were a little bit askew and. And here you are. Yes. Okay, so um, so uh, we talked about uh, dominator culture, and now here are some of the characteristics of partnership culture. Is something that we can maybe aspire to and 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 work towards. Uh, partnership culture has a core of concern for the common good, and is characterized by mutually beneficial social, economic, and environmental practices. The public sphere in balance with the private sphere. Localization first, emphasizing regional self-sufficiency and sustainability in balance with the global economy. Women fully equal in all aspects of society. Interfaith movements creating bridges of understanding between religious and spiritual uh, traditions. Norms in media culture and communication that emphasize power with rather than power over. Fair trade, not free trade. Nonviolence from personal interactions to international relations. Fully democratic governance locally, nationally, and internationally. Admiration and appreciation of indigenous people's culture and wisdom. And societies that strive to produce holistically healthy individuals in mind, body, and spirit, whose needs for meaning and purpose are. So the big question is, how do we get there from where we are now? And we can talk about transformational ecology, which you could think of as changes in human consciousness, taking a more holistic approach to environmental stewardship. And that relates pretty directly to what we're doing with my organization, we, we the World. I didn't mention the uh, website, by the way. You can connect to us uh, through that at wetheworld.org. I'm going to talk about something that we've started called the Now is the Time for We campaign. Before I get there, and you can imagine what that's about, but before I get there, I have a theory that I want to share with you. And it's about the crisis of meaning that many of us have, especially in the wealthiest countries. Why? this crisis is there and what we can do about it. And I'm talking about the void that is in many of our lives that comes from suppressing our instinct for service. And you could call that the will to good. Here's my theory. A million years ago, or quite a long time ago, maybe more than a million years ago, when humans, the early forms of humans were in groups trying to survive on the plains of uh, Africa, predators and all kinds of uh, 
things. They had one value which enabled them to not only survive but to evolve and, and go to that next level of evolution. And that was the survival of the whole group depends on the well-being of each individual in that group. And can you imagine if that was the value that was practiced on our planet today? And not just with humans, but all, uh, all, all, of, all life forms. I feel that the, the suppression of that instinct creates a void in people's lives at, a, at an early age. And it's, I feel it's the, the basis of widespread alienation, disconnection, lack of purpose and emptiness of spirit that has such destructive effects. For example, in the United States, many people deal with this kind of underlying void in their lives in, in ways that can be harmful to themselves and to others. You can imagine, you, you probably see this here, here and there. People avoid that void through addictions and escapes, such as drugs, alcohol, but it could be tobacco or TV or shopping or entertainment, sports, overeating and internet browsing, people try to fill the, fill the void by going for that American dream and buying more stuff, make as much money as possible. Or some people try to protect themselves and increase their power. That's, uh, that could be in corporate boardrooms or in politics, by manipulating others at work or in relationships, by getting away with things or by using violence or hatred in gangs or other antisocial kinds of communities like, like gangs. And sometimes uh, people are just apathetic. They become apathetic, uh, believing that people can make a difference in the political uh, power structure. So why vote? In many elections uh, in the United States, nearly half of the eligible voters choose not to vote. And I consider that to be a crisis of meaning. We have the Obama phenomenon, which coming after eight years of George Bush. So hopefully that is uh, moving in a, in a different direction, but it, it's still, there are nearly 100 million people who are eligible to vote who do, do not vote. So basically what we're doing with We the World is something that not only on a practical level will allow people to come together to make real change through political will, the political will to good, but also the very process of encouraging involvement is something that we feel is important on an individual level and as a society to begin to heal that void, to fill that void. And instead of filling it with addictions and escapes, to fill it with a sense of meaning and purpose as people get involved with, with creating a better world. And I think many of the people in this uh, room have have had that experience of, of feeling fulfilled because of your actions. Just a, a word about this. Uh, now is the time for we is a video. It's a movement and it could begin to transform how social groups, uh, social change groups interact and create change on, on the planet, especially if you get involved. So I'd like to invite you to do so. Other than that, I'm interested in hearing any questions or thoughts that you might have at this point. Thank you. Thank you for that perspective. Uh, given that the world is going to end in, in uh, I guess, 2012, <laughs> that got postponed because of the changes in calendars. Um, does it matter really what we do now, uh, between now and then? Or? Uh, on a less serious note, uh, on a less serious note, yes. Thank you. Next month we have. Can you hear me? On. Okay. Next month, uh, some representatives from, from some 192 countries are going to gather in Copenhagen. What, from the vantage point of we the world, what would justify the, the you know, what kind of agreement would justify the damage done to the environment by representatives of some 192 countries? gathering in one place. Uh, I'm not sure I quite follow. Th what would justify? Well, what? Yeah. That's right. Flying and travel and so on. Oh, and you're talking about you know, the carbon footprint well, of, yeah. of everyone converging on Copenhagen. That's right. And given the, 
you know, given the various interests, conflicting interests and conflicting responsibilities and so on, uh, you know, there's certainly it's not going to be easy, but what one piece of agreement will have justified the damage? Is that clearer? Or? Yes, well, for me, yes, yes for, for me, I'm really looking at this as, uh, you know, one step. I don't think that it's going to make a big change or as big a change as, let's say, science scientists are, are asking for. And in fact, there are a lot of groups that have been mobilizing to bring awareness about climate change, especially in light of this meeting coming up. One agreement, ideally, would you like to see? You well, know, like, for example, like 20% reduction, let's say, from the Kyoto Protocol, 20% reduction in emissions by 2020, that kind of thing. Yes, well, see, like I... Ideally, like, what would you like to see? I, I'm still looking at it in a different perspective because, like I said before, even if all of what the, the majority of the scientists are asking for is something that suddenly gets done, we still have our cultures. We have, you know, we have China and India with their huge populations. And what's happening? All these companies are going in, in there to with the idea that Let's give them the opportunity to have the same kind of lifestyle that the United States has had. And where are the resources going to come from to, to make that happen? I mean, there, and people, some people are trying to see if we can make a leapfrog to have sustainability in, in new industries that are going into developing countries. But it's not, it's not that much that's going on. So I, in other words, my, my whole thing is public awareness raising education and mobilization because I think that we need to have an ongoing movement of people who get involved and, and they're, inform, they're informed. In fact, one of the things that we do with We the World is that there, there are like three pillars of our work, inspire, inform, and involve. So, and, and that's been very successful. The, the folks who spoke earlier from Search for Common Ground do this very well where you involve the arts to connect with people and get them involved, while uh, you, you do consciousness raising and information sharing, and then you give them ways that they can take action on the spot. That's really the formula that, that we're promoting in terms of galvanizing the public. The campaign that we're doing, that we're beginning now called Now is the Time for We, is, is really about people shifting their consciousness to go beyond just considering themselves in their actions, their everyday actions and their attitude. It's changing the consciousness, but then the, the campaign itself, the way, the way we're envisioning it is that four times a year, seasonally actually, uh, coinciding with the equinoxes and the solstices, or let's say um, culminating on the equinoxes and solstices, these campaigns will result in particular actions in certain areas. So we're talking about renewable energy, you know, labor, there's various other issues that, uh, you know, water is a, is a major concern. I mentioned before that the global demand for water is going to double. And water is connected to so many other important issues. There's water in poverty, there's water and climate change, there's water and pollution, there's conflict over access to water. So water itself touches on so many issues. So anyway, the idea is that four times a year, there will be this sense of global consciousness. So people that have once a year for Earth Day, which is a wonderful thing, that we have more of a cyclical kind of thing. So it, it's, it's happening more or less continuously with a focus in certain areas. So, so really that's my, that's my uh, focus. It's, it's more really empowering grassroots involvement. So we started something called 11 Days of Global Unity in September, and it's actually up to the point where there are more than 700 associated events around the world that in, in more than 60 countries. And it's a model of organizing that ha we haven't really seen before. We've seen these these big 
concert events like Farm Aid and Live Aid and Live Earth and many of those. And you have a, a concert, you have a lot of celebrities taking part in it, and you have some media that are interested and giving it exposure for a while. But what happens is it drops off. People don't have that carryover and carry through. So the 11 days model that we've started that we are going to continue now with this, now is the, the time for WE campaign, is where there are communities that take part in the campaign around the world. So it's like decentralized. There may be some hub events that have a lot of attention, but the real work is happening on the ground in communities around the world. And, and with whatever the, the theme happens to be, it's, they're organized in those communities. So the idea is local action, global participation. So these communities know that at the same time they're doing their work, they're connected with many others around the world, and there, there may even be ways to connect them in terms of video links and that kind of thing. In the same way that today there are several events that Lucis uh, Trust is uh, doing and World Goodwill uh, at the same time. So the idea would be that we do these on a regular basis. So it really has to do with community involvement, and then the volunteers connect with those organizations on the ground in those communities around the world and go forward with that work. Yes. Just what I want to say is basically um, that uh, the two uh, presentations today uh, deal with a common point of um, you know resolving a problem. But in the way I see it is that the solutions have been there. Right. And uh, uh, the idea of the we, for example, is uh, a tremendous awareness in, in many different levels, in many different places. Uh, but um, the selfishness always opposes the I to the we. In other words, what is there for me? It's more important to how do I share this with someone else or, you know, with other people. And... Uh, Union, for example, has existed before, uh, uh, before the uh, Israeli-Palestinian problem. The Israelis, well, they are called Israelis now, they were not called Israelis at that time, and the Palestinians, they were living there, they were sharing you know, the land, they were doing things. There's no idea of Palestine state, and there was no idea of Israel state. Well, you know, yeah, I know, I know. I'm not talking biblically, I'm talking in terms of the political... Uh, I know, the history of things very often is not shared, uh, not a shared reality. Right, right. Different so when you said, I want a Palestine uh, state, or you want an Israeli state, you, you, it's like you said, I want me the part of my cake, you know, I don't want the cake for everyone. Uh, even, even nations is uh, an example of division. Uh, you have these limits when, you know, right. I separate the United States from Mexico and separate it from Canada. Now, if we have a real sense of we, that we are the world, I mean, we don't need limits. We don't need the problems of, you know, passports and, and, and you know, customs and all the things because we are aware that it's the whole world, it's our world, it's the world of everyone. That's right. So uh, in, in, in facing these, uh, there are different levels. Uh, for example, uh, in the case of Israel and Palestine, uh, if I invite Netanyahu and, let's say, in the past, uh, Yasser Arafat for going canoeing, uh, you know, canoeing for a month or something, I don't think that the problems are going to be resolved because the interest that they uh, handle uh, fr from the two youths to young people who, you know, have different interests, much lesser, you know, importance uh, or lesser responsibility, they can get over those differences. But between Netanyahu and Yasser Arafat, it's going to be much more difficult mm -hmm. because the, the scope of responsibilities and interests are much greater. So um, the, what I try to say is that there, there are different levels of resolve things. Now, when you mention love, love is very, very important because love is the only element of cohesion is, is what put us all together. We are one soul, one humanity. When love, when we understand what love is, when love is union, you know, it's totally the opposite of separation. 
uh, and, and, and it's a divine you know, quality that we all uh, learn to share. There's no explanations for love, there's no definitions, but we feel it and we know it and it's always union and it's always cooperation, it's always giving, it's always you know, all these kind of elements uh, typical of love. And so the problem sometimes, to resolve problems, is that we are weak. Uh, in other words, uh, the elements, who, to, uh, the goodwill that we, you know, put us together tonight or this afternoon uh, is weak. We don't have the, really the goodwill to do something. So in Copenhagen, for example, uh, the powerful people of the world are going to decide what to do. You know, but we, we know the problems. We know the problems of water or poverty or whatever. Where is our voice? Where is our power? Mm -hmm. we know, where is the power of love? If I may say that, right. use that. So that, that's phrase. great. Thank, thank you so much. And I think that's important in terms of what we're talking about because the whole dynamic, the whole concept that uh, we're talking about with We the World and the, and the movement towards We is it it's, it's comes from the people from, the, from below. It's not really uh, leader, you know, political leader centered. So you can have those two people in a room, but they have their interests. If their interests begin to change, if people begin to connect. Like one of the points that, that they made earlier with the search for common ground is that there are so many groups in the Middle East that are working f uh, towards peace, but we don't hear about them on the media. We hear about the, the bombings and all of that. But there are at least 40 groups that are working for peace peaceful, nonviolent solutions that are made up of people on both sides. And we just don't hear about that. So part of what we want to do is expose those things, give those things more visibility and give people more hope. It's also a matter of expanding circles of, you know, like our, let's say, base of people that share the values that we're talking about would be those people who would probably take part in, in these global campaigns first. The fact that it's happening and it, and it begins to expand as more media uh, come to uh, feature these things, it will begin to have a ripple effect because cynicism is a, a very powerful part of, of our culture. Um, Paul Ray, who wrote the book, The Cultural Creatives, his research showed that there are something like 40 or 50 million people in the United States alone who share values of social justice environmental stewardship, and on, on and on, uh, indigenous peoples, all of that. What he found was that he would go into their workplaces and they'd share their values, but then he would ask them if they talked to their other co-workers about these values. And they said, oh, no, no, I just do my recycling and I do my thing, but I don't, I don't talk to other people because I'm just like, I'm unique in this way. But then he would introduce John to Mary in the same workplace who shared the values and had been working together for 10 years but never talked about that. So one of, his, one of the things that excited him about joining the advisory board of We the World was that what we're doing has the potential to make visible the cultural creatives so that they be, can begin to know about each other and, and begin to act collectively. And that's the kind of thing that we feel is needed to make that shift and sort of give that push, make, make a safe space for politicians to then begin to act in, in certain ways because they know that there's, movement, there's a movement on the ground. I, I, okay, her and, and her, and then I have the Declaration of Interdependence. I mean, I, I think these ideas are great. Um, I just, to me, they're only, though, reaching 10% of the problems like with how humans treat other humans. I don't think the major problem are people's selfishness. Yes, some people are, but I feel many people are not selfish. But there's other problems that groups like typical today do not address. For instance, how gay people are treated in the Mideast. I mean, there's a case where gay people will run to Israel for protection because in their own cultures they will be killed. And no one addresses these things, and this is not a selfish uh, or not selfish issue. This is a fundamentalist issue, a issue of prejudice, 
I mean, there's just so many more factors in the world. I mean, it's great to uh, say we can cure everything by all of us being unselfish, but I feel the world really turns its back on gay rights, on how women are treated in Africa, uh, genital mutilation. I mean, these are very urgent problems. These are problems of life and death, and then it really not addressed by anybody, in my opinion. Yeah. There are actually group, many groups that are working on those things, but again, we don't really hear about them. And so the idea is to empower those groups so that they can get more of the kind of support and reach out to, to do the kind of work on the ground that's educational, awareness raising. A lot of, uh, you know, I think a lot of fundamentalism uh, is not the interfaith movement is really working to educate and allow people to to connect uh, search for common ground and l find that common ground and let that expand to their communities well anyway it's a, it's a longer talk but the, but the basic idea is to promote those groups that are doing that important work so before we end i I wanted to see if we could do since we've had an afternoon of some kind of uh, speaking in, uh, together, I thought there's, there's something that we started in 2004 when we launched the 11 Days of Global Unity, and it's called the, the Global Declaration of Interdependence. And it's actually something that honors and is inspired by the, the Earth Charter, and we work with the Earth Charter people, but it's also, you know, there are many declarations of interdependence. There are like 40 of them out there. And so this is kind of to honor that whole process of talking about our interdependence and that kind of thing. So what I'd like to do is say a line and then you, maybe you can uh, say it back together. We, the people of planet Earth, in recognition of the interconnectedness of all life and the importance of the balance of nature, hereby acknowledge our interdependence and affirm our dedication to life-serving environmental stewardship the fulfillment of universal human needs worldwide, economic and social well-being, and a culture of peace, of, peace and nonviolence to ensure a sustainable and harmo harmonious world for present and future generations. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. And thank you, all of you, for sharing your thoughts this afternoon. We probably will need to forgo our group discussion, but I think in a way we've already had plenty of chance to share our thoughts and uh, begin somewhat to understand one another. I'd like to just sum up the day's work with a few thoughts of my own before we have our concluding meditation. Our focus throughout the day has been on igniting the will to good in a time of decision. A clue to how to go about that is found in the word igniting. Language is so fascinating, and I always like to go to the dictionary because you never know what you'll learn. Somebody referred to it as that most occult of all books, <laughs> and I find it often is. Ignition is the act of setting something on fire. To ignite is to subject something to fire, to heat it strongly, to kindle it. What exactly is it that we want to set on fire in the world at this time. The will to good is the will to love, to establish relationship. And I think we would all agree that as a result of the talks and discussions we've heard, nothing less will do, nothing less than the will to love, to unite in the search for common ground, will save us, humanity, from our lower impulses, from the bad wolf that exists within all of us. The fire of the will to love is the love of the greater whole, Alice Bailey said, and the ability to do whatever is needed for the good of the group. This capacity comes, I think, when the long-range vision is held uppermost in mind, and this is what sustains the world's servers who are active throughout cycles of failure, inertia and doubt. They never give up because they work and they live for the future. In the present economic crisis, it's common to hear the question, have we turned the corner yet? Nobody really knows for sure, but I would say not until we are absolutely certain that the causes of the crisis have been identified 
and the commitment has been made to apply those measures that will ensure that the crisis has been mined for every bit of its teaching value. Not until then can we say we have turned the corner. I think the great fear in the hearts of a lot of people is of goodwill is that we are going to imagine the media will tell us that we have come out of the crisis before we've really learned enough to change our ways. If we think about what should be spiritually ignited in the world at this time, above all, it would be the spirit of relationship, beginning with the transformation of our own consciousness and within our own families and our own immediate group. For the task of the coming world teacher, the Christ, the Maitreya, the Messiah, is to impart the fire that burns and destroys all limitations, all barriers in human nature, all separating walls between individuals, groups, and nations. That's why the spiritual path is called the burning ground. It's not so much that the spiritual path is one of sorrow and agony and pain, although it can be that for the most recalcitrant, slow-to-change personalities. But more importantly, the path is the burning ground that is the expression of the effect of the soul. The soul is that central spark of pure divinity that exists in every human being, deeply buried in some, but present in everyone, well-masked, but beginning to glimmer in the millions, perhaps billions of people of goodwill that are now existent throughout the world and a bright radiance in the new group of world servers who are so visible in all fields of human endeavor today. When this blazing light shines upon the little self-will of the personality, its effect is like that of the sun shining upon a glass. When it's focused correctly, ignition occurs, and it creates a fire that burns up all hindrances. Maybe that can be a good metaphor for what's happening in the world today. The Ageless Wisdom tells us that there is a center on our planet called Shambhala, which is known and recognized by many of the world's faiths. It's the center where the will of God is known. This fiery divine will is now released into the world to a degree never experienced before, apparently because humanity is now ready for it able to bear its powerful effects. And these effects are expressing a synthesis. We see it most visibly in the blocks and the amalgamations that are occurring in many fields in politics and between governments and in trade, travel, the countless international conferences such as Copenhagen. We see it in less positive ways too. The old barriers are coming down and giving new openings to the international drug trade, to the traffic in slavery, money laundering, and the effects of the planet itself, the effects of climate change. On every level of life, world conditions are expressing the cry for the spirit of relationship to ignite human hearts and minds. Although these problems are too big for any one individual to solve, at the same time, I think they are unsolvable without the commitment of millions of individuals, one by one, deciding of their own free will to commit themselves and their personal resources of time and money and energy and talent to the resolution of those problems. The power that comes when the spark of divinity is ignited within the millions of people of goodwill is now found in every society, every religion, every ethnicity. And it's that which puts them in touch with the common source of us all. This central source is the reservoir of pure spiritual power, and its effect when it's tapped is nothing short of miraculous. That's what makes the growing tide of grassroots initiatives so exciting to see. And maybe that's why Alice Bailey said, in the word goodwill, the secret purpose of the planetary logos, whom some call God, is hidden. In the word goodwill, the secret purpose of God is hidden.
Goodwill is not just the spirit of friendship, but a powerful spiritual energy that remains implacable in the face of defeat and undaunted by a response of defiance or, what's worse, indifference. Goodwill is the energy that sustains the people, for example, who work behind the scenes in the seemingly endless efforts to work out solutions to global problems. These are the unheralded foot soldiers, we could say, that do so much of the preparatory work. And then when a breakthrough comes, we call it a miracle. But it's only because of their work over long periods of time. I remember going to the United Nations in Geneva and taking the tour of the the headquarters and seeing the rooms where people had worked for I think three decades to develop the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Three decades of meetings. Just imagine three decades of committees and discussions and disagreements and points and counterpoints and blah, blah, blah until we had the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Those are the people I think who are really the, the miracle workers. Goodwill is the power that enables negotiators who've had the long experience of sitting through international discussions to work out a resolution to the conflict in the Middle East, to never lose sight of the fact that even the most intransigent members of the opposing side, people whose life experience and worldview and customs and history and personal experience are so different that, if nothing else, we share a common humanity, and on the basis of that recognition alone, concord is possible in the long run. We are of the same species. We share a common origin and a common destiny. Every one of us here today can leave with possibilities to strengthen the spirit of relationship in the world, and we should work on all levels, including physical cooperation with those NGOs and nonprofit groups that are working in fields of endeavor that appeal to us. And in addition, there's the service of meditation and visualization, which draw upon the resources of the mind and seek to mold the direction of human thought and planning for the future, because we know that all lasting change occurs in the mind with a new idea. The idea of right human relationship isn't just a prayerful hope, but a steadily mentally growing concept of what it takes to bring an end to the conflict and separation. One meditation service that, uh, that contributes to this is Triangles, an act of service done by groups of three, hence the name Triangle, who agree to link up in thought with each other briefly each day and say the great invocation while envisioning their triangle as part of the worldwide network of triangles which is radiating light and goodwill into human consciousness. And that service activity, we have information about it available on the table over there for you to take if you would like to learn more about it. The other activity I want you to know about and perhaps consider is the Cycle of Conferences project, which is sponsored by World Goodwill, and it's a visualization to help sustain the international conferences that are seeking to address some of the major problems of humanity. The idea being that the people who are actually involved in the conferences, in the debates, in the discussions, need all the sustaining power we can give them to clarify and rightly think and discuss and come to solutions. So it's a subjective, supportive service of visualization of the will to good to sustain the conferences that we are hoping will bring about a resolution of problems. And the cycle of conferences presently has two focuses. One, environmental stewardship, climate change, and the other, the conflict in the Middle East. And information is on the table over there also for you to take if you'd like to participate. Meditation is always the way we close our work. 
because group meditation can be a powerful means of service to humanity through the radiation of spiritual energies of light and love and the will to good into human consciousness where they can then reach and make impression upon those responsive, receptive minds of people of goodwill throughout the world.
Morning, sleepy. Guess you want McDonald's for breakfast? Uh, how'd you know? You're sleep humming the McDonald's jingle. I don't know what you're talking about. You just did it. No, I didn't. So, McDonald's? I could use a McCafe latte. There's a McDonald's for every morning. Start your morning at McDonald's with a delicious sausage biscuit and savory hash browns for only $1.50. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. How do you not hear that?